0: Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World Rediscovery, episode R2, Arabia Felix. A few months after reaching Bombay, the last of his companions died. Three years earlier, they'd set out as a group of five specialists—the cartographer, the linguist, the artist, the naturalist, and the doctor. Now, only the cartographer remained, and with no ready map in hand to show him his next move. Karsten Niebuhr had come a very long way, in pretty much every respect— Thirty-one years before, in 1733, he'd been born to a poor peasant family living along the North Sea coast of Germany. Niebuhr's only path to advancement was an aptitude for mathematics, a skill he'd used to begin studies as a land surveyor in the central German city of Göttingen. In 1760, one of his instructors approached him with an interesting proposal Actually, that's kind of an understatement. To modern ears, it sounds like an absolutely insane proposal, but here it was. The ruler of Denmark and Norway at the time was the 37-year-old King Frederick V. As a youth, Frederick had been raised in an extremely strict religious household. Despite or because of his pious upbringing, he soon grew into a major league libertine and all-around royal party animal. Marrying him off at the tender age of 20 did little to curb his extracurricular activities, and the best thing to be said about his leadership style was that he surrounded himself with capable ministers and let them do the actual governing even if it was just a convenient way for him to spend more time engaged in frequent wine-fueled orgies. So, hmm, what's the next logical step for a pious Christian ruler on a hedonistic spiral? How about commissioning an expedition to Egypt, Arabia, and Syria, with the primary goal of shedding new light on the lands of the Old Testament? Full disclosure, Frederick had not thought this up himself. The idea was the brainchild of a well-known German teacher and biblical scholar named Johann David Michaelis, who wrote from his post at Göttingen University requesting Frederick's support. The stated goal of the venture was to further study of the Bible through a better understanding of everyday life in the Near East. Michaelis believed that visiting Yemen— also known as Arabia Felix, would be particularly useful, since, being relatively isolated, the country had likely preserved many traditions and social patterns from the biblical period. Whether a PR stunt, a momentary royal fancy, or a stab at making things right with the man upstairs, Frederick paused between drinks long enough to offer Danish support. The expedition was duly mounted, and word went out to solicit the proper individuals to fill the critical roles. This, then, was the offer that landed in young Karsten Niebuhr's lap. As a mathematician, he was recruited to be the group's mapmaker, and also to use astronomical observation to help them chart their course. Having little idea what he was signing up for, but pretty sure it was better than a return to the family farm, Niebuhr eagerly accepted. Like an 18th century A-team, the remaining members of the expedition were soon assembled. The philologist was Frederick von Haven, a specialist in Asian languages who'd studied under Michaelis at Göttingen. The naturalist was Peter Forskall, a Swedish botanist and zoologist. The artist was Jörg Wilhelm Bauernfeind, a German miniaturist and engraver. And lastly, the group's physician was Dr. Christian Karl Kramer, who'd earned his medical degree a reassuring six whole days before the party disembarked. Surprisingly, there was no demolition expert or master of disguise, but remember, these were more primitive times. With his peasant background and minimal education, Niebuhr was quickly relegated to the bottom of the party's pecking order. The unofficial leaders of the group were the full professors, Von Haven and Forskall. Both men were proud and opinionated, and not shy about lavishing the other members, particularly Niebuhr and quote-unquote Dr. Kramer, with their barely concealed contempt. Ironically, the main reason there had been no official leader named was that Forskall had insisted that all members be given equal rank, mainly to make sure that he wouldn't have to take orders from anyone. While all the men had conservative religious backgrounds, and were likely in tune with Michaelis's biblical vision for the venture, they were also motivated by the general thirst for knowledge typical of Enlightenment scholars. It should be highlighted that this was the very first scientific expedition ever mounted by any government to study the ancient world. In addition to the biblical itinerary, the king's instructions included the general mandate to pay heed to any surviving remnants of past ages. The party left Copenhagen on January 4, 1761. King Frederick would have seen them off personally, but at the time he was convalescing from a broken leg, earned the previous year when he'd gotten roaring drunk and fallen off his horse. I'm not making this up. And, well, I'm sure he was with them in spirit. The first several months of the journey were entirely spent trying to sail up the Kattegat around Jutland against a series of fierce winter storms. At one point, Niebuhr calculated that they'd covered over 2,800 nautical miles, but only gotten 30 miles closer to the Mediterranean. It was just the kind of annoying fact that Kirk would tell Spock to keep to himself. Eventually, they broke free and sailed southward around Spain and into the Mediterranean. Their destination was, more or less, the Ottoman Empire. And since a lot of our rediscoveries will take place within, around, or beneath Ottoman territory, the topic is probably worth a short digression. The Ottoman Empire took its name from Osman I, the Bonebreaker, who declared his small Anatolian kingdom independent from the Seljuk Turks in 1299 AD, then aggressively expanded its holdings, both east and west, through warfare. Over the next 150 years, Ottoman rule spread over a weakened Byzantine Empire, capturing former Byzantine territories as far west as the Balkans, and eventually taking Constantinople itself in 1453 under the Sultan Mehmed II. The next two centuries saw further Ottoman conquests in Egypt, North Africa, Western Arabia, Central Europe, and the Mediterranean. A snapshot of the empire at its greatest extent shows it roughly comparable in both size and possessions to the Byzantine Empire under Justinian, with the notable exception of Italy. In addition to their peerless military, Ottoman administration also earned a reputation for fairness, inclusiveness, and efficiency. At the May 1683 Battle of Vienna, Europe finally managed to blunt the Ottoman advance. Over the decades that followed, additional military losses to both Russia and Austria began to signal an empire in decline. Competition from alternate trade routes and less expensive products, primarily from Europe and the Americas, combined to drain the Ottoman economy, while weak central control and growing government corruption combined to erode Ottoman power and legitimacy. It would be another century before the Ottoman Empire would openly be called the Sick Man of Europe. But the lands awaiting the Danish expedition would already show the transformation well under way. In Istanbul, the expedition was hosted by the Danish ambassador von Galler, who provided them with letters of introduction to contacts in Egypt and Arabia and outfitted the party with proper oriental dress. During their months at sea together, Forskall and Niebuhr had struck up a friendship with Niebuhr earning Forskall's respect through his amazingly accurate navigational calculations. On the flip side, relations between the rival professors, Forskall and von Haven, had taken a decidedly frosty turn. It's considered frosty when you catch someone buying arsenic in Istanbul with the clear intention of poisoning you, right? Then, yeah, frosty. Keeping a much closer eye on Von Haven, the party next put in at Alexandria in Egypt. They then traveled to Cairo, crossed overland to Suez, and, after a frustrating and relatively fruitless side trip to Mount Sinai, set out on the Red Sea, bound for Arabia. Arriving at the port city of Jeddah, they soon boarded a smaller boat for the final passage to the Yemeni port of Lohea. In December 1762, almost two years after their journey had begun, they'd finally reached their ultimate destination. Tempers had cooled, comfortable familiarity set in, and the members of the expedition went to work discharging their respective duties. They found the country and its people welcoming, pleasant, even idyllic, at least for the first several months, Then, in April of 1763, things began to go horribly wrong. Though they weren't diagnosed at the time, both von Haven and Niebuhr had come down with malaria. With summer on the way, the party had to choose between traveling to the relatively mild inland capital of Sena or the baking southern coastal city of Mocha. For reasons that aren't entirely clear, they set out for mocha. At the time, the city was Yemen's main port, and, per Ottoman law, was tasked with collecting duties on all ships entering the Red Sea. Mocha had also earned fame in recent centuries as the major marketplace for, you guessed it, coffee beans. Von Haven, the linguist, found himself bedridden almost from their arrival. In May 1763, he finally succumbed to his illness. The party now realized that getting to a milder climate had become a necessity, and, after burying Von Haven in a local Christian cemetery, struck out for Sena. Two months later, along the difficult journey inland, the naturalist Forskall was suddenly struck ill and also died. Forskall's abilities and determination had been major drivers of the expedition, and his loss was a rough one, especially for his friend Niebuhr. Aside from the voluminous records and specimens he'd shipped back home, Forskall's greatest legacy turned out to be on the politics of his homeland— A treatise he'd published in 1759, titled Thoughts on Civil Liberty, led to Sweden obtaining freedom of the press in 1766, twenty-two years before the same right would be guaranteed to Americans in the U.S. Constitution. Senat provided the expedition with some much-needed hospitality and a welcome change of climate. But the party was now working on a timetable, Back in Mocha, they'd made arrangements to sail to Bombay on a British ship that was leaving mid-August. The extra time taken on the journey inland, to care for the dying Forskall, forced them to strike out for the coast after only a few restful days in the capital. In fact, the aggressive pace of their return march meant that the expedition arrived back in Mocha in a state of absolute exhaustion and sickness. On board the British ship, Niebuhr could only watch helplessly as Baurinfeind, the expedition's artist, slowly weakened. By the time they reached India, he died as well. The only consolation for the party, now reduced to Niebuhr and Dr. Kramer, was that Bombay was headquarters of the British East India Company, and they received both European hospitality and proper medical attention. But while Niebuhr's health steadily improved, Kramer's condition continued to worsen, until, in February of 1764, the doctor finally expired. Niebuhr had spent the past few years in the company of these four men, all young Northern European scholars similar to himself. Now he was halfway across the world and utterly alone— Niebuhr would spend a total of fourteen months in Bombay, during which he radically simplified his diet, after the style of the local Hindus, in an effort to rebuild his constitution. Doubting his ability to forge on alone, his inclination was to sail for Copenhagen via London as early as possible. But as more time passed, Niebuhr's spirit of adventure reasserted itself and he decided to travel home via Syria and Istanbul as originally planned. Leaving Bombay in December 1764 aboard an East India Company ship, Nibor's first stop was the Omani capital of Muscat, near the entry to the Persian Gulf. Sailing into the Gulf, he next put in at the Persian port city of Boucher. From here, Niebuhr would travel overland, mainly via caravans, for much of the next 18 months. Copenhagen may have been his ultimate destination, but his subsequent itinerary shows that getting home quickly was far from his top priority. What did Niebuhr know about the lands he was about to enter? Very likely only what the Bible had told him supplemented by some scanty knowledge obtained from Greek and Roman sources, along with other bits of information he may have either gleaned from his companions or learned along the way. Nibor had little formal schooling, and had been hired primarily for his map-making skills. Though he'd taken it upon himself to learn Arabic in preparation for the journey, he was no Orientalist or antiquarian. No expert in peoples or histories. Von Haven and Forskall had been the most knowledgeable in such matters, and, as fate would have it, they'd also been the first to die. As last surviving member of the expedition, the 31 year old Niebuhr took it upon himself to shoulder all their roles linguist, illustrator, naturalist, and physician while traveling through a region about which he knew next to nothing. It's hard to say which is more remarkable, that he appeared undaunted by the challenge, or that he actually succeeded in so many important respects. Niebuhr first made for the Persian capital of Shiraz, 200 miles inland from Boucher. Though he had no way of knowing, the city had ancient foundations, and was first mentioned in Elamite clay tablets dating back to 2000 B.C., Since 1501 AD, Persia had mainly been ruled by the Safavid dynasty, the first native dynasty since the Sassanids to exercise control over a united Persian state. The fall of the Safavids in 1722 had led to a regional scrum, with the Afghans, Turkmen, Ottomans, and Russians all vying for control. By 1750, a general named Karim Khan Zand had defeated all comers and established the Kurdish Zand dynasty, which would last until 1794. At the time of Nibor's visit, in early 1765, Shiraz had only served as Persian capital for three years. But those years had seen the city restored to former glories, including the construction of a new royal district holding a fortress, administrative buildings, a mosque, and, reportedly, one of the finest covered bazaars in Persia. Even more desirable to Nibor was the city's location. From Shiraz it was only forty five more miles to the ancient Persian capital of Persepolis, and he made for the site straight away. 2,300 years after its foundation by Darius I, and 2,100 years since its destruction by Alexander the Great, the site still boasted an impressive set of ruins, later identified as military quarters, reception halls, palaces, and a royal treasury. Many surfaces were covered with decorative reliefs of Persian soldiers and tribute-bearers, reflecting the great king's power and the vastness of his empire. Approaching the colossal statues of winged bulls, or lamassu flanking the entrance to a massive gate, Niebuhr also noticed something else. Writing, in three distinct scripts, all of which were totally unfamiliar. Further exploration uncovered many more such inscriptions, all arranged in the same three parallel columns. The cartographer, taking on the role of both artist and linguist, dutifully recorded everything he saw. After a month spent living near the ruins of Persepolis, surveying its ground plan, copying its reliefs, and transcribing its inscriptions Nibor returned to the Persian capital of Shiraz in April 1765. The following month, he traveled back to the port city of Boucher. From there, he sailed up the Persian Gulf to Basra, which, well, he found to be kind of a hole. A few months later, in November 1765, Nibor made the decision to go fully native. Karsten Niebuhr, European scholar, vanished, replaced by Abdullah, the simple Arab merchant. It was as Abdullah that he visited the ruins of ancient Babylon, then sailed north along the Tigris to Baghdad, which at the time was resisting Ottoman rule under the control of a Georgian Mamluk dynasty. In March 1766, Nibur-Abdullah traveled onward to Mosul, a loosely held Ottoman possession along the important trade route between the Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf. From Mosul, he journeyed westward, crossing both the Tigris and Euphrates, and following the Silk Road to the ancient Syrian city of Aleppo. Once second city to the Ottoman Empire, Aleppo had seen its fortunes plummet over the past century, as a sharp decline in Persian silk production severed the city's ties to lucrative European markets. Upon his arrival in June 1766, Niebuhr the European once again emerged, to make contact with the Dutch consul-general, and to his surprise, find himself feted as toast of the town. The fate of the Danish expedition had been a common topic among European circles in the Near East, and Niebuhr's reemergence as the party's sole survivor made him something of a minor sensation. But just in case you thought he might take this reception as an excuse to slack off, Nibor spent the next two months traveling first to Cyprus, which just happened to be in the middle of a bloody civil war between Greeks and Turks, then to Jerusalem, and then to Damascus. Everywhere he went, he drew detailed maps and illustrations and took copious notes on the local cultures. Nibor remained in Aleppo until November 1766, when he finally decided to set out across Anatolia for Istanbul and make the final push for home. After all the death and hardship of his Arabian travels, at least he could feel confident that the remainder of his journey would be smooth sailing. Nearing the capital in February 1767, Nibor barely survived a major regional earthquake— Leaving Istanbul a few months later, he arrived in Bucharest just in time for a major breakout of the plague. Farther west, he learned that traveling companions who'd set out a few days ahead of him had been killed by bandits. Oh, and did I mention that his malaria kept flaring up periodically during the whole trip? Because it did. Luckily, he had no firstborn son to be killed, and I don't know, the locusts must have had the week off. It wasn't until reaching Warsaw in August 1767 that Niebuhr finally felt some sense of security. He wrote in his diary that for him, the borders of Poland were as good as the borders of Denmark. In November 1767, Niebuhr finally arrived at Copenhagen, almost seven long years since the expedition had begun and having spent half that time as its sole surviving member. In contrast to Aleppo, Niebuhr's reception in Copenhagen was practically non-existent. King Frederick V had died, and his seventeen-year-old heir was too busy indulging the family vices to make any use of the voluminous records compiled by the expedition. Niebuhr, however, had no intention of letting his colleagues' deaths be for nothing— His first book summarizing his travels, A Description of Arabia, was published in 1772, with the Danish government subsidizing the engraving and printing of its many illustrations. This was followed in 1774 and 1778 by Niebuhr's release of the first two volumes of his diary, entitled Description of Travels in Arabia and Adjacent Lands. In between these two volumes, and in the absence of royal funding, Niebuhr had self-published as much of his colleague's work as he could get his hands on, including Forskall's manuscripts and Bauer and Fane's drawings. Soon after completing all these efforts, Niebuhr married and retired to the country, taking the post of county clerk in a small coastal town. He'd go on to live a long and mostly happy life before finally passing away in 1815 at the ripe old age of 82. And you think your grandpa has great stories to tell by the fireside? I can only imagine. Okay, at this point, I know what you're probably thinking. Scott, that is indeed one crazy story, and someone should seriously purchase the movie rights but what exactly does it have to do with the rediscovery of the ancient world? Well, I'm totally glad you asked. First off, much as Champollion's later discoveries would inaugurate the discipline of Egyptology, Niebuhr's works had given birth to a similar discipline, devoted to the study of Mesopotamia, that would soon bear the name Assyriology. They'd also earned him widespread renown across Europe— In 1798, when Napoleon pitched his plan for a legion of scientists to accompany his Egyptian expedition, he'd supposedly brandished a copy of one of Niebuhr's books for emphasis. It also just so happens that Niebuhr's 1778 book included detailed copies of the tripartite inscriptions he'd found at Persepolis. Inscriptions that we all know were written in the languages of Old Persian, Elamite, and Akkadian. Now, we know this, but of course Niebuhr didn't know it. In fact, at the time, no one had ever heard of either the Elamites or the Akkadians, and no one had any idea what to make of those strange wedge-shaped characters that had slowly begun to emerge over the past few centuries from the sands of the Near East. In 1618, a Spanish ambassador to Persia named Don Garcia Silva Figueroa had been the first to identify the site of Persepolis, but been utterly baffled by the inscriptions he found there. In 1621, an Italian explorer named Pietro della Valle made copies of several inscriptions, which soon became the first cuneiform symbols ever published. Even more remarkable, Delavalle managed to bring back inscribed bricks from the ancient city of Ur, the first hard examples of cuneiform made available to modern Europeans. In 1628, an English noble named Sir Thomas Herbert also visited Persepolis during a British embassy to Persia, and recorded what he described as a dozen lines of strange characters, consisting of figures, obelisk, triangular, and pyramidal. In 1704, the Dutch artist Cornelis de Bruin, returned from a Near Eastern tour with detailed drawings of Persepolis, including some inscriptions, that caused a minor sensation in Europe. But it wasn't until Niebuhr's publication of numerous detailed inscriptions from Persepolis that anyone actually considered making a run at cracking the cuneiform code— Actually, in the case of cuneiform, it was a variety of codes. While Egyptian hieroglyphics had only been used to write the Egyptian language, making the script and language one and the same, cuneiform had been used to write a number of different languages, including Sumerian, Akkadian, Urartian, Elamite, and Old Persian. Adding to the difficulty, cuneiform had been out of circulation even longer than hieroglyphics, with its last recorded use on a Babylonian astronomy tablet written in 75 AD. The effort was kicked off in 1802, coincidentally the same year the Rosetta Stone found its permanent home in the British Museum, by a Danish bishop named Frederick Munter. Munter started by focusing on the simplest of the three cuneiform scripts, the one that would later be called Old Persian. By studying the characters, he confirmed the impressions of Niebuhr and previous visitors that the script was likely alphabetical and written horizontally from left to right. He also noticed that groups of characters were separated by slanted vertical wedges, and deduced correctly that these lines were used to separate words. Munter next proposed that a recurring group of characters found in one of the inscriptions was likely the word for king. And lastly, Munter was apparently the first scholar to suggest that all three cuneiform scripts might contain the same text. Later that year a German school teacher named Jorg Frederick Grotefend picked up on this train of thought. Like Munter, Grotefen focused his attention on the simplest of the three scripts. Munter had provided the word for king, so what Grotefen needed was a standard period phrase that included the word. He knew that later Persian kings, writing in more familiar languages, had used the following formulation. X, great King king of kings, king of A and B, son of Y, great king, king of kings, where X and Y were king names and A and B were place names. Was it possible that the phrase traced its origins all the way back to the birth of the Persian Empire? As Grotefan checked for the word king in the inscriptions, the logic of the formula appeared to hold, and it slowly dawned on him that he just might be on to something. He also noticed that, based on the formula, all the inscriptions from Persepolis had been written by only two great kings, a father and son. But which two? Grotefen's next breakthrough came when he saw that the elder king's father wasn't listed as being a king himself, which meant a new ruling dynasty, which served to narrow things down a bit. Leafing through his Herodotus, he was able to rule out Cyrus and Cambyses, since the cuneiform characters were a poor match. But Darius and Xerxes fit like a glove. As a reminder, Darius's father Histippus had been a noble but not a king. Once Grotefrand had transposed the Persian versions of the Greek names, he was able to decipher the cuneiform characters in the names of all three men. His discovery was published in 1802 under the unassuming title Contributions to a Commentary on the Persepolitan Cuneiform Writing. Despite the importance of his discovery, Grotefen’s work languished in relative obscurity for decades. It wasn't until 1836 that Eugène Bernouf of France and Christian Lassen of Germany, working separately, each identified a critical inscription from Persepolis listing the satrapies of Darius. By comparing the list to historical sources, the two men were able to build on Grotefend's work and decode the remaining cuneiform characters of the old Persian script. It was a great start, but only a start. The inscriptions from Persepolis were, after all, tripartite in nature, and just like the Rosetta Stone, knowledge of one script might be the key to unlocking all three. Old Persian had been the easiest to crack, alphabetic, read left to right, and with helpful word breaks. The other two scripts, whatever they were, were likely to prove far more challenging. What was really needed was a much longer inscription in all three languages. As it just so happened, in 1836, the same year Lassen and Bernouf were busy deciphering the Old Persian alphabet, a man was gazing upward at just such an inscription. Hundreds of lines of text in all three languages flanking an enormous relief sculpture of a Persian king, triumphant over a bound group of rebel impostors. The only problem was that the inscriptions were carved a good 200 feet above the ground, into the sheer cliff face of a sacred mountain known as Behistun, Next episode, we'll meet Henry Creswick Rawlinson, soldier, diplomat, orientalist, and linguist, as he first sees the inscription that will change the course of his life forever. Next time, on the Ancient World Rediscovery.